0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit
1: westminsterchapel.org.uk. God is not great. That's the title of the atheist Christopher Hitchens book and the subtitle is Religion Poisons Everything. I 100% agree with him. Hi, my name is Howard. It's my privilege to lead Westminster Chapel. Thank you so much for joining us online. How on earth could I agree with him, right? Well, that's because I believe that Christianity is so different from all the other religions of the world. It's unfair, really, these days to almost call it or treat it like just those other religions. And the God that Hitchin portrays, What the- That is not, not the God that I personally worship. Here's what Hitchin says in an interview. He says, The existence of God would be a bad thing. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and invigilation of what you do, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. For Hitchens, religion equals totalitarianism. And God? Well, God, therefore, must be some kind of self-absorbed evil dictator. That, of course, is totally not what the Christian faith is like at all, and I hope to show you that today. But it helps me to make the very first of three points I want to make today is that religion kills. But before we get into that and into Daniel chapter 3 and a reading of it, I want to do a little recap. We're in a series, 12-part series, on the 6th century BC book of Daniel, and we've got the theme of victory is now here. The truth is that most of us as Christians in the Christian life are not living in the fullness of the victory of God, and we hope this series is going to help us apply the victory we already have in Jesus. Daniel and his friends are forcefully taken from their homeland, Jerusalem, in, all the way, 700 mile march to to go and serve a foreign empire, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It's horrible. It's a crisis. Now, we're living through a, a not dissimilar crisis, different, short, sure, the coronavirus crisis, but with similar uncertainties and pressures and challenges that are upon us. And really throughout the Christian life, you will go through all sorts of crises. Everybody does in life, don't they? And they could be like battleground, hard to get rid of sin issues. It could be challenges with your family at work, career, just plateauing, not feeling like you're going anywhere, different crisis. And so we need to help to get out of that. And we looked at the first chapter and we said that there is hope that's God's primary message to get hold of don't think that you know that don't just assume you've got your sense of that this hope is so amazing capital h hope and we saw it because God is in control and we can trust him that God goes with his people into captivity you are not alone he will help you through these difficult times So channel chapter one, we see this great victory over the food allegiance test. They say no to the king, wanting to assimilate them into the culture. We need to say no to this culture around us. Individualism, comfort, what I want, all that kind of stuff. Secularism. We've got to say no to that like they did. They say no. What happens is they live off just seed food. They actually turn out to be better in appearance and fatter in flesh, it says in the text. Victory for God. Daniel chapter 2, the king has a dream. He can't make sense of it. None of his wise men can understand it. Daniel and his three friends can. Another victory. I made that so far. God 2, Babylon 0. So now we get to chapter 3.
2: Let's have it read, at least the first part of it, to us. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. The image of gold and the blazing furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura, in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, scyther, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They serve they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up.
1: About seventeen years has gone by between chapters two and chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in chapter 2, doesn't he? That he is going to be one of four kingdoms and his kingdom is not going to last forever. But he will be the head, the gold, if you like, the representative of that. That was what Babylon will be before these other kingdoms come. And now he's decided he's going to go against that, rebel against that. I'm going to be the one who lives forever. And so he builds a 90-foot statue. We think it's probably of himself for people to come and worship That is gold, very important, from head to toe. This is rebellion. This is, I'm the real authority here. I'm in control, not the true God. Look at verse two and three. Anybody, everybody has to come down and bow down and worship. We think that was around 300,000 people, maybe including some of the Jews taken captive as well. And then into verse five, you've got another sevenfold list. So notice lots of sevenfold lists. I'll comment on that later. Seven different types of musical instrument coming together, probably in the most sweet-sounding siren song that human beings alive at that time had ever heard. They didn't have the kind of technology that we have today. It'd be easy to be taken in by that. This was impressive, sexy, powerful, amazing, smokescreen-like religion. But its underbelly, verse 6, was force. Bow or burn. That's your choice. No exceptions, no room for grace. Religion kills. Think back in history. Think of the religious, atheist, totalitarian regimes like uh, communism and the millions and millions that it killed. Or of Adolf Hitler, seen as the Messiah, religious-like leader of Nazism, fascism. And there's, just, there's so much suffering that he caused. Or consider Christianity's own moments of history that we must absolutely lament. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition. But we must note in doing so that they are expressions of Christianity without Christ. A politicisation, if you like, of the Christian faith, where it's had its true central teachings, its doctrines sucked out of it, particularly salvation by grace, by God's unmerited favour alone. Now, we all struggle, I think, with religion. It's easy to agree with it being kind of a historical problem. But in the present moment, it's hard not to be taken in by it. And we have to recognise that it's bad killing people out there. But this thing is inside us. There's a bit of Nebuchadnezzar in there somewhere. We want to be in control. We want to be king. All that sort of stuff is there. It's a cinder of evil inside every human being's heart. And if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to blaze and it's going to destroy you. That can be hard to accept, right? And I think it's hard to accept because sometimes we're just so caught up with going with the flow of the current kind of religious and a panoply of gods that we can worship in society that you don't know that you're going with the flow until you stand against it. We get sucked into this kind of religiosity type of worship. I think the writer of chapter three is trying to show that through giving us lots and lots of lists. They're boring. They make your brain deliberately go into kind of an autopilot, brain-deaded mode, because that's what religion does. Stops us from thinking, we just go with the flow. Take social media as an example, and your phone. I've lost count of the number of times I've challenged people to give it up, just even for 24 hours every single week, and they can't do it because it is in control of them. And they will say things like, actually, this is how I relax, looking at Facebook or whatever, Insta, all these kinds of things. I tell you, it's not helping you to relax. It's feeding your appetite for competition, for comparison. It's giving you a sense of dissatisfaction. It's in control of you. You can't give it up. Anyway, rant over. We all are religious, we all worship something. That's not just my conclusion. That's what David Foster Wallace, he's an acclaimed writer, sadly now deceased. And he said this some years ago, but I want you to know he is not a Christian. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. So where are you caught up with religion? What are you worshipping apart from Christ? Where are you sucked in? Where are you being controlled? Because honestly, you probably are in some ways good moment for self-examination. See, only real Christianity can crush and destroy religion. Religion is all about you trying to perform, deliver, earn, strive in some different ways, trying to make your way arrogantly to climb up the ladder to God or financial freedom, nirvana, whatever you put at the top there. The Christian faith is about God coming down. God wants to relate to people not by force but by love. He alone is the one who could demand your absolute worship he created everything yet instead God comes in Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for all of your sin all the blasphemous wrongful offensiveness that you have done to God just like Nebuchadnezzar does rebelling against his righteous ways of living God comes to clean the slate out for you and on the cross he demonstrates his love you don't have to earn it He just gives it to you, unmerited favor. He accepts you just as you are. That's grace. That is love. Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte put it like this, at the end of his life he concluded that his own empire and Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, the genius of their empire building rested upon what? Force. But what about Jesus? He says, his empire rested upon love. And today, millions of people would die for him. (laughs) We live today in a culture that's becoming more and more secular. And I would say that this secularism has become religious. There's a sense of woe to you if you speak out on any of the kind of sensitive, hot potato topics of today. Abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. It's even reached the point where gay sort of atheist writer, a man called Douglas Murray, writes about this in his book here. And he says himself that this religious secularism has become totalitarian and we're easily kind of going to bow down to that or are we going to burn if you like for God's glory in spite of it God hates religion more than you do he hates the comes he doesn't want you to be controlled and and oppressed by it out there but he also hates it in you that sinful desire to be in control to be King, to tell people what to do, to have them bow down and worship you, to get their appra- applause and sense of approval. I mean, why can't people relate to you on your terms? It's all about you anyway, isn't it? And all the problems are out there, other people, not, not in here. Ah, oh, how does God root that out in us? He sends us trials, trials of faith, fiery furnaces to purify us and set us free from religion. Here's the second reading that's coming, down in chapter three, verses 13 to 23.
3: Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace.
1: Furnaces show you where you're really at spiritually. That can be scary, but for us who are Christians, there is now no condemnation in Christ I sometimes wonder what part do I and other believers not get of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. No, not even a hint. Zero, zip, nada, absolutely no condemnation whatsoever. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ, God himself, is condemned on the cross. So by faith in Christ, you cannot be condemned. So what then is happening in these furnaces, and these trials, God isn't condemning you. He's counseling you. They're designed to help you to to grow. They're designed to purify you, cleanse you of your religious sinful desires to be in control. They're designed to get you to the end of yourself so that you will trust completely in God. That's what happened for the three in Daniel chapter three. What could they do to save themselves? They were bound. They were thrown into the furnace. They could do nothing. They had to utterly and completely trust in God. And that kind of trust is built on relationship, on intimacy with God, on on knowing him deeply. And they built that up over many, many years. This trial doesn't come until 20 years into the book of Daniel. And they've had so many difficulties they've had to face over that time that they had grown more and more and more dependent on God. And that's your calling as well. This brings me to another story. Uh, It's about Charles Blondin. He was a famous tightrope walker of old. And he put a tightrope 1,100 feet across Niagara Falls. And he would go across that performing all sorts of tricks. And there's a story told of a time where he's doing all these tricks. And he goes and talks to the crowd. And he says to the crowd, who's the greatest tightrope walker in the world? And the crowd say back to him, you are, or you the man. Or, I don't know, whatever they said back then. And then he says to them, who could push somebody in a wheelbarrow across this tightrope? They say, you can, you could do anything. Then he says to them, who will get into the wheelbarrow? Ambivalent silence. You see, their profession didn't match their practice. That can be a challenge in the Christian life too. Maybe it is for you. The story goes on and it says that after a while of silence that that Blondin's mum came through the crowd, that she got in in the wheelbarrow and that she was pushed backwards and forwards along over Niagara Falls with no problem whatsoever. How could she do that? Because she knew and trusted her son. She loved him. That is how I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to get into the fiery furnace, the wheel or barrow, if you like, of faith. Let's look in a bit more detail then how they did that from verses 17 to 18 to help us truly face up to our furnaces, not to run or hide from them, but to dignify them and grow through them. Well, firstly, if we look at these verses, we see that they believe God is able they say, Ah, God is able to deliver us. This is their response to giant-like intimidation from Nebuchadnezzar. He's like the most powerful man in the world. And in verse 15, almost echoing Goliath from a few centuries before, he says, which God could save you out of my hands? He's like, I'm the most powerful being in existence. You have no hope. Their response is, our God is able. There's nothing impossible for him. There's nothing too hard for him that he cannot do. He is the creator of the world. That's what they believed. He created ex nihilo, don't you know, out of nothing. That's awesome power and ability. I wonder, how do you say the world began? If you're just saying nothing begets something, I think that's logically, utterly, well, stupid, really. I believe in the beginning, God, spirit being, creates the world and creates physical matter and brings it into existence. They knew from the creation story, the power of God. They knew from the Joseph story. And in many senses, this story that they knew and would have grown up with, they saw themselves reliving in their generation That God could turn great evil of horrible suffering into tremendous good to bring about great salvation. They knew from the Moses story, God speaking to Moses through a burning bush, but the bush wasn't consumed. That our God is in control of fire. He doesn't need raw materials to burn. Maybe they won't burn either. And they knew from Moses that God can do amazing things, bring plagues. Hey, he can part an entire sea. God is able. That was their faith. There's nothing too hard, there's nothing too difficult for him. That's the faith I want you to get hold of at this time because it'll give you courage to face your furnace and to grow through it. Whether that's related to the coronavirus, whether it's a besetting sin that you're struggling with, that you've plateaued with, that you're avoiding dealing with, if you knew the power and the ability of God, wow, it would change how you really live. The size of our view of God is often revealed by our willingness to get into the wheelbarrow of faith. That's the first thing, God is able. The second thing is they knew God is good. They say he will deliver us. Where does that confidence come from? Well, I think it comes from their knowledge of the scriptures. They would have known the Bible, inside and out. And they knew it revealed God as a God who cannot sin, who can do no wrong. Therefore, he is pure, beautiful goodness. They would have known the promises, the good promises of God and the particular ones that were relevant to them at this time being preached by people like Isaiah. I think they would have memorized Isaiah chapter 43. When you pass through the rivers, it says, I will be with you. And when you pass, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. The three saw themselves, I believe, as God's ambassadors to Babylon, fulfilling the Genesis chapter 12 covenant of God's desire to reach people of all nations. And they were remembering going back of the faithfulness of God towards them. This is a good thing for every Christian to do. They would have looked back at the great victory of chapter 1, the food allegiance test, God had come through. He was good. Chapter 2, God had come through, saved them from death by being helping them to interpret the dream. And they were able to say why wouldn't God therefore be good and faithful to us in this present trial. We want to have as our starting point, he will deliver us because God is good. Isn't that a helpful place to begin? To say, why wouldn't God vindicate our witness? Why wouldn't God show himself strong on our behalf? I wonder how firmly you right now are holding on to the goodness of God, are rehearsing his past faithfulness towards you. There is a but coming, isn't there? Now, I generally, I like big butts, and I cannot lie. <laughs> Sorry, what could so mix a lot reference. I mean by that, I love the big butts of scripture. Those moments where it's like sin, death, despair, but God, and he intervenes and it's amazing, Right? but this is one of those difficult buts one of those buts that's really hard to to live out but if not we're still willing to be burned for our god is what they say now i think they could have said no oh, i didn't sign up for this god i didn't sign up to being taken from know my family and my homeland and kind of ripped out of that and deposited into Babylon that wasn't my choice God I, I didn't sign up to be castrated to have part of my personal sensitive anatomy removed we think they were probably forced to become eunuchs so that they were kind of safe to serve in the empire I think they would have been saying, I didn't sign up to a life of singleness with no sex life. I didn't sign up never to be able to get married and have my own kids and be a dad. This brings us to a really important question. What do you like? What happens to your faith when God doesn't give you the life that you want? Maybe right now, and perhaps understandably, you could be saying, God, I didn't sign up for the coronavirus crisis. I didn't sign up to lose my job, to be put on furlough, to have my money and income go down. I didn't sign up to be living in isolation. I didn't sign up not to be able to attend the funeral of somebody that I I love. I didn't sign up to have my wedding cancelled or put on hold. I didn't sign up to have to work from home and have the pressures of homeschooling at the same time. I didn't sign up, I didn't sign up, I didn't sign up to work on the front lines to have no proper, without any proper PPE protection and so on. I didn't sign up either, by the way. I actually hate having to watch myself on screen. I'm a hypercritical person who's battled with body dysmorphic disorder. That is not easy. I definitely did not sign up for that. I think I'm much better probably in a a live kind of audience situation where I'm able to listen to what the Holy Spirit is doing and respond and and be able to look at people in the eye. I feel like a caged sort of person in this situation. I move around too much, even for this camera that's kind of not able to keep in focus with me. But some say, I don't move around enough. And then I have others you are preaching too much grace, not enough law, there's not enough challenge, it's not as, as strong enough, it's not as good for the Christian as the nun. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> and I want to approve and, and, and uh, please all of those people, but I realize I can't. I want to be in control of all of that, my reputation, what I look like in this moment, but I can't. I have to trust that God is. That's what this time is teaching me. My point I'm just trying to make is that no one signed up for this. I should say seriously as well that I'm, I'm not asking your, your encouragement. That would be really nice. Um, maybe your money would be even better. <laughs> My point that I'm trying to make is that no one signed up for this. But what if God has you right where he wants you? What if in this moment he is trying to kill off that religious desire of yours to be in control? What if he's trying to teach you to really trust him? Are you listening? Are you learning the lessons he's trying to teach you? Now, I know that this coronavirus crisis this season we're in isn't the exact context of Daniel chapter 3, which is persecution for faith. And there are huge numbers of Christian, most persecuted group in the world persecuted for faith. But I think there are parallels and lessons that we can learn and apply to the coronavirus crisis and every crisis that we go through. Trials see their furnaces designed by God to forge you more into the image of Jesus. Jesus, who so nearly entrusted the Father that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that he could save you and anybody who would believe in him. Now, this opens up another question What if your suffering, your trial, your difficulties, your crisis isn't really primarily about you? This is sometimes hard to take. That actually, God's story, you're not the star of it, actually. And in our self absorbed kind of pity parties over our own suffering and difficulties, we lose sight of reality. We make it all about ourselves. But actually, what if your suffering, the difficulties you're going through right now, are meant to be the shop window to reveal God's grand plan of salvation? This leads to our final point faith triumphs, and our final reading as well. Taking us to the end of Daniel chapter three.
0: Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon.
1: Faith triumphs because everybody gets to see Jesus. Everybody gets to see God. That's what happened in this 6th century BC barbecue. There is, I believe, I can't quite prove it to you, but there is a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, With them, in their furnace, in their suffering, in their trial and difficulty. God shows up in moments in the Old Testament. The commander of the Lord's army to Joshua. He's there, I think, wrestling with Jacob in these moments. It's all a bit mysterious, but here in this furnace, in that moment of need, God is there. If you dignify the trial, if you surrender to the trial, I believe you'll find God closer to you than you ever knew him before. That's the promise. That's the hope that's available. You see, the three, they knew God. But now through this experience, they knew, like embossed, (laughs) highlighted, italic, underlined. They knew God was with them in a much greater way. And their lives showed the world that God is better than some sugar daddy idol that you can turn away from or shun or push or ignore when he doesn't give you what you want. They were revealing to Nebuchadnezzar and everybody else watching that they hadn't married their God, if you like, committed to him because of his money, you know, what they could get from him. No, they, they were totally committed to God just because of who he is, because of his mercy and his love and his grace and his goodness and his holiness. Their willingness to die was saying that God is worthy of their deaths. That's what their lives were preaching. I wonder, what do our lives preach about the kind of God we worship? Their faith through suffering became the shop window for others to begin and start and grow in that journey of faith. Nebuchadnezzar starts to say praise to the most high God. He goes on to say verse 28, because why they trusted him. It was their trust, their willingness to trust God that awakened. It was a spark to help them to see God. And then he says, verse 29, no other God can save like Yahweh, like the most true God. And he is absolutely right no other god can see our god doesn't he can't just doesn't have the power just to save you from the fire he can save you in the fire that's how great he is and how does he do it his grace he does it by getting into the fire with you wow and that's what he does at the cross he gets into the fire of the cross with your in there in sin but he gets in there for you so that all the heat, all the, 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 the fires of hell and judgment come on him so they don't come on you. God does that for you. Wow. That means he's so worthy of our worship, of us giving our life, our everything for him. And, and that we should not bow down to anyone or anything else. And this true faith of these three, it starts to disrupt false religion in this chapter. And that's what your true faith will do. So these perfect, seemingly perfect seven lists, the number of perfection that's given, uh, it's common in the Hebrew uh, thinking, starts to break down and reveal its imperfection as the numbers of of people worshipping, as the numbers of people, uh, musical instruments that are happening go down and down and down. Ultimately, to this amazing display that begins to put a death blow to false religion, which we'll take up in the next chapter. Whether in life or in death, God is in control of our lives. They're part of his grand salvation plan when we trust in him. That is what Latimer and Ridley understood These were two extraordinary men who on the 15th of October, 1555, would die for true faith whilst being persecuted by false religion. And in this incredible moment as they face their death, Latimer is reported to say this. He turns to his friend and says, be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by the grace of God, as I trust, light a candle in England that will never be put out. And historical sources say that their martyrdom turned the tide of popular opinion against what had become an incredibly religious, almost totalitarian expression of Catholicism that would resort to such brutal executions. Westminster Chapel, this is our moment. This is time for you to play the man and to play the woman, to be the all that God has made you to be, to shine like stars in this crooked and depraved world. Because God is able, he is good, he is with you in the furnace. And if you will surrender it in it to serve him, I tell you, we'll become a shop window. We will light a candle in London and beyond that will bring hope to hundreds and thousands who will come to us in order to meet the Saviour, Jesus. It's time. Are you willing? Are you willing to play the man, to play the woman? I pray that you are. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you went into the fire You tasted hell on the cross for us. You demonstrate your love, and your love is victorious over force, over control, over religion. God, forgive us for all our desires to be in control instead of you. Cleanse us from it now in this moment. Help us to get into the wheelbarrow of faith. Help us to trust you. Help us to know how powerful that you are able, that you are good, Lord, and that you have come for such a time as this to empower your church to be all that you made us to be for your kingdom and for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel.